Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Unhurrying with the Rule of Life series. How many of you feel like you have margin in your life? Margin has been defined as the space between your load and your limits. How many of you feel like you have space just to breathe in your everyday life? Let's say there was an app that gave you a digital readout of your soul, meaning this integrating center of your being, your mind, your body, that part of you that doesn't show up under a microscope, your will, this, your whole person. How many of you, your digital readout would look something like this? That top line is your max capacity, where you literally run out of hours in a day, or you like work so hard you come down with a sinus infection and end up in bed due to exhaustion, or you just go postal and start screaming at your poor mother-in-law at Thanksgiving when she asks you to please pass the salt. I don't have time for that, or whatever. (laughs) That next line down is your emotional and spiritual limit. It's a kind of glass ceiling where if you go over that, You're still functional, but you no longer have the capacity to live well, at peace and at ease in your own body with a a Jesus kind of relaxation where you work from rest, where you're flexible and open to interruption and you don't take yourself too seriously, but you have the capacity to chuckle at the tragedy of life this side of Eden. Instead, if you go over it, you're still functional, but you're anxious, you're a little bit mad at the world, you're short on compassion, and in one word, you are unloving. And the bottom line there, that limit is your idol. That's where you function most days, just a little bit below or well below that glass ceiling where your life is full and generative and passionate and about what really matters, but you have space for the random interruption on the side of the road, for that friend or family member in need, just for life to happen to you, you have margin. How many of you, your digital dashboard would look exactly like this? It's exactly what I thought. One of you, bring it on, well done. Um, You should be giving this sermon, not me. A few years ago, when I was doing some research around the concept of hurry, I came across this little book, Margin, by a physician, Richard Swenson. His basic diagnosis is that the widespread emotional and spiritual malaise of our time is rooted in chronic overload. And his prescription is margin. Opening line to his book, the conditions of modern day living devour margin. If you are homeless, we send you to a shelter. If you are penniless, we offer you food stamps. If you are breathless, we connect you to oxygen. But if you are marginlessness, we give you yet one more thing to do. Marginless is fatigue, margin is energy. Marginless is red ink, margin is black ink. Marginless is hurry, margin is calm. Marginless is anxiety, margin is security. Marginless is culture, margin is counterculture. Marginless is the disease of the new millennium and margin is its cure. He writes up 20 categories of overload. Here's just a few highlights. One, activity overload. Anybody? You just have too much on your plate. Two, change overload. You just can't keep up with all of the change in politics, in technology, with social dynamics, with all the PC language. It's just exhausting and you shut off at some point. 
Three, choice overload. It's Cheesecake Factory menu on repeat, right? <laughs> Too many <laughs> options. Four, commitment overload. How many of you say yes to just a few too many things? Like, yes, I'm in. And then that morning you're like, no. And it's the, it's the millennial text message, sorry, I'm not feeling well, which means nothing anymore, you know? <laughs> Five, debt overload. In particular, those of you in your 20s, like no other generation in American history has had more debt on its shoulder. Expectation overload. So many people, so many expectations on us. Seven, information overload. I mean, you all know the stat that a single edition of the New York Times contains more information than the average person in the 17th century would, would take in over in a lifetime. Media overload. Have you heard the phrase entertainment anxiety yet? It's a great phrase for that feeling that you get. We're to the point now where there's so much TV and film and media to consume that whenever anybody says to you, oh, have you seen Man in the High Castle or whatever it is, many of us feel instant anxiety. because, Like, I'm already behind on West Wing or whatever it is, and that's still from the 90s. I'm decades behind. What do I even do? And how am I ever going to like keep up in conversation? And we feel anxiety. Now, there's another thing I need to watch or see or consume or whatever. Noise overload. I just saw my first protest sign a few days ago and I thought I might get into protesting now and it said stop noise pollution. Scientists are just now discovering the neurological impact of noise on our brain. Fatigue overload. We're just so tired. That's just a small sampling. His point is we live in a marginless culture which drives us into overload and from there into burnout. Earlier this year, Ann Peterson had that great article in BuzzFeed on how millennials became the burnout generation, where she points out that burnout used to be reserved for a Wall Street day trader or an ER doctor, and even for them, it was a place that you would visit, and then you would go on a sabbatical or vacation or get therapy or whatever, and then you would come back from it. Now, for millennials, it's for the many, not for the few, and it is a place that we live from long term. She has a very erudite critique of the way marketing departments attempt to monetize our burnout with things like a day at the spa or essential oils, God bless your cousin. But in the end, her, oh sorry, some of you are the cousin, I should not have said that. Her, there's a lot of things that end up at the 10 that don't make it to the night, I'm so sorry. But in the end, her solution is basically democratic socialism. But it seems to me that is an attempt to treat the symptom and not actually deal with the root cause. The Korean-German philosopher Byung-Chul Han has done a deep analysis of this in his book, The Burnout Society, which is fascinating. He opens by saying that neurological illnesses such as anxiety, depression in particular, ADHD, bipolar, and burnout syndrome, quote, mark the landscape of pathology at the beginning of the 21st century and are the emotional household we call home and the hallmark of what he calls a late modern achievement society. His key insight is that the West has moved from what he calls a disciplinary society to an achievement society over the last two centuries. A disciplinary society, so you know, rewind to England 200 years ago or whatever, was governed by no. It was all about what you're not allowed to do based on your class or your gender or your religion or whatever. You can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do that. And when a disciplinary society, which isn't all bad, goes to the extreme, it produces madmen and criminals. This was the breeding ground for Freud and all of his work around neurosis. But our 
achievement society is nothing like Freud's world at all. We live in, a, in, a, in his, the world that was created by his ideas. Our society is governed not by no, but by yes. We're allowed to do pretty much anything that we want, we not being followers of Jesus, but being secular Portland people, as long as it doesn't, quote, harm others, and that is the problem. Hun writes about the, quote, violence of positivity, how we are, quote, entrepreneurs of ourselves, and the result of all of this positivity, you can do anything that you want to do, be anything that you want to be, is anxiety. We freak out, what if I'm the wrong person? What if I make the wrong decision? Depression, exhaustion, and burnout. Quote, depression began its ascent. Depression, by the way, is, is a modern, late modern Western phenomenon. It's been a long time since our country has been this unhappy. When the disciplinary model for behaviors, the rules of authority and observance of taboos that gave social classes, as well as both sexes, a specific destiny, broke against norms by enjoining us to be ourselves. Meaning this depression culture started as the West began to say, you do you, be true to yourself. Don't let anybody, don't let your gender, don't let your class, don't let your religion, don't let your parents, don't let your city tell you what to do, you do you. With that came the rise of depression. The depressed individual is unable to to measure up. He is tired of having to become himself. Anybody? The depressive's bleak thought, this is a key insight, nothing is possible can only occur in a society that thinks nothing is impossible. And he writes that at the end that now our achievement society is giving way to a doping society where we just escape from all of the stress and competition and the secular nihilism and the ennui into a life of doping, whether it is with drugs or alcohol or pot or just Netflix or Instagram or eating out or video games or work or whatever our cultural narcotic of choice is. And this is the hard truth. Many of us don't have enough margin in our life, not because we're type A stereotypical overachievers or the next Elon Musk, but because we're underachievers in a doping society for which our city is famous around the world. Philip Zimbardo's recent research on the demise of guys, meaning the crisis of masculinity in Western culture, has concluded that this is a stat, not an opinion. The average American male spends 10,000 hours playing video games by age 21. For all of the talk, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for this, but for all of the talk about patriarchy and toxic masculinity, when I'm with most women and it's off the record, I hear very little lament around that. The most of the lament I hear is where are all the good men? Zimbardo's basic thesis is that we are losing an entire generation of American men to what he calls the unholy trinity of porn, pot, and video games. A generation lost to porn, pot, and video games. My point is that across the spectrum of personality, from the Elon Musks of the world, the 100-hour week, driven, crazy type A, to the stereotype of so-and-so living in mom's basement playing Fortnite till three in the morning. We live in a marginless society. And Han's thesis is that our marginless culture of burnout is rooted in the secular worldview itself. I have no idea of his religious orientation. It's very, he doesn't say anything about that. But in a secular frame of reality, there is no vision of eternity. And there is no vision of meaning and purpose to life beyond what you make of it, which for most people is either pleasure or work or some combination of the two if you're in a city. In a secular worldview, life is fleeting. 
You are an animal and nothing more. There's no one watching out for you. There's no greater meaning or purpose or plan for your life or loving God with intentions for your future. No one's loving you just as you are. You are what you do or what you consume or how you dress or what you enjoy. Hence the obsession in our culture with efficiency and pleasure or work and hedonism for which the city is a breeding ground. Why do people move to a city? To kill it in their career and to have play for grownups. Those are the main two things, not for cost of living. Like nobody's here because it's like just really cheap rent and a relaxed place to raise children, right? (laughs) People are here to make money and to play as 20 and 30 somethings. And the result is a life with no margin. But instead, with noise, overwork, pathological busyness, distraction, and as a result, burnout. Now, the word that we've been using for this kind of a culture is hurry. And the essence of hurry, we said, is too much to do. It's not a lot to do. That's actually healthy. It's too much to do. Where we just don't have enough time. And so the only way to cram it all in is to speed up the pace of our mind and our body and our relationships and our interactions with other people, including God and our own soul, to this pace that is incompatible with love and with life in the kingdom of the heavens. And to reiterate what we've said all along, that is the main problem. It's not just that a life without margin and instead with hurry is tiring and we feel kind of stressed out and not as happy, as if that's not enough of a reason. But for us as followers of Jesus, why we take this seriously is it sabotages our capacity for spiritual life which we defined as our capacity to give and receive love and relationship with God and other people. Chronically exhausted, over busy, digitally distracted people who are in a hurry all the time and have very little margin are not only vulnerable to burnout, they are not very loving. And I say this from experience, not as a critic, but as somebody of whom this has often been true. The need of the hour is to recapture a biblical theology of limits. On that note, Genesis chapter one, if your Bible is open, the library of scripture has, from page one, long before you ever get to Jesus' teachings, has a very different view of time, very different view of what it means to be a human being than you're an animal with time and chance on your side, very different view of what the good life is, of the rhythm of work and rest than secular culture, and one that I and many of us here this morning find far more compelling. Take a look at Genesis chapter one, verse 26. You know the story. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now skip down to chapter two, verse four, where we read, Basically the same story, but from a very different angle. Verse four, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. 
Then the Lord God formed a man, or Adam in Hebrew, where we get the proper name Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became, in Hebrew it's nefesh, which is the word for soul. In the NIV it's translated a living being. We became a soul. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, or delight, and there he put the man he had formed. Skip down to chapter three, verse one, after the woman comes into the story and everything gets better by order of magnitude. Verse one, now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You don't even touch it, you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And the story goes on. Notice that Adam and Eve, who are in the story, in the literary style of the story, are a stand-in for all of humanity. Adam is not a proper name in Hebrew. It's Adam, and it just means human. And Eve is a Hebrew word meaning life. So human and life are a stand-in for all of us as a whole. And notice that they are made both in the image of God and, we like to talk about that, what we like to talk about a little bit less is they are made from the dust or the dirt. And this is not just a scientific statement. This isn't a geology textbook that you're reading. If you read it that way, you get really wonky really fast. This is a theological or even more an anthropological statement about who we are and who we were created to be. One way of reading the story is that humanity is infused by God with both potential and limitations. Potential, we are made in the image of God. We literally have the divine fingerprints in our body, right? For as much talk as there is about how we are like the animals, and we are like the animals, but what we don't hear a lot about in secular culture is we are even more or just as much like God himself. We are rife with a dizzying amount of potential to rule in the language of Genesis, to function as a queen or a king, and to rule over the world as a kingdom but also limitations. We're made from the dust. We get old, we get sick, we die. We're finite, not infinite, in a body, in time, with a place in the created order, a place of delight, but that, that is assigned to us by God himself. And as a lot is said in our culture and in church culture about reaching our full potential, and I am 100% for it, especially for those that don't come from a middle-class background or privilege. But the problem is almost nothing is said about receiving our limitations, and both are true. We all have limitations. Here's just a few examples. Our body, number one. As I said, um, unlike Luke Skywalker, we can only be in one place at a time. We're not omnipresent. Though through technology, we often attempt to be, as a mentor of mine recently called the phone, the human experiment in omnipresence. But we're not. We're here. We have this body. Our mind. 
We can only, God bless you, um, know in part as Paul once said. And the problem is we don't know what we don't know and what we don't know often can and will hurt us. Not to mention our IQ, which is not the same across the board as much as we all wanna believe it is, it limits us. Yes, our mind is like a muscle and we can exercise it to its full potential, but I don't know about you, but no matter how much I read or study or how many degrees I pursue, I will simply never have the intelligence of many of the people I most look up to. This is a limitation. Our gifting, on a very similar note, I will never have the gifting of many of the people I look most up to. And comparison, as we all know, just eats away at our joy. Our personality and emotional capacity, number four. We only have so much capacity. I'm an introvert. That is like, I'm actually very relational, but my relational plate is like a teacup, not a serving platter, right? And so that, that's, that is a really significant limitation. That's a glass ceiling over my life. I'm also a bit melancholy by nature. And so some people who are just more extroverted and a little bit tougher just have way more capacity than I do. They can relate to more people, they can carry more responsibility, they can handle more stress, more criticism, they can work more hours, they can lead more people than I could ever dream of. Our family of origin, none of us start with a blank slate. Some of us start with a leg up, others of us walk with a limp early on from our years, and, and much of that has to do with who our parents were or were not. You come from a single family home or two parents, were they healthy or dysfunctional? Healthy is relative, we all know that, but still. Our family puts some limitations on us before we are ever born. Our socioeconomic origin, much of the anger in our social justice sphere is over this concept of privilege and the reality that we don't all start from the same place. And of course, we wanna you know, mitigate against all of that and do all we can to advocate for equality of opportunity. But no matter where you fall on that socioeconomic spectrum, even if you are middle class, there will always be somebody ahead of you. Number eight, our season of life like going to college or raising a young child or caring for aging parents. In some seasons, we have very little extra time to give away. Many have noted that when we're young, we are money poor, but we tend to have time, especially if we are single. But as we age and then pick the constraints that come to define our life, it flips, and many of us now have money, but we are time poor. They say that for every close relationship, cut your margin or free time in half. So when you get married, you have half the free time that you had when you were single. When you have a baby, you're down to 25%. I have three children, which means in theory that I have 8.3% of the free time I had pre-marriage. Who's counting, all right? <laughs> Thought about renaming my children limitation number one, limitation number two, limitation number three. Again, this isn't bad, it's wonderful. It's a limitation for, I guess, a season of my life, but a season that is, you know, a few decades long. Number nine, God's call on our, our life. I hesitate to say this because, again, it would be really easy to misread, but there are limits to God's call on each of us. There's a sphere in the language of Corinthians that God has assigned to each of us. I think of Peter's envy of John's call over his less pleasant assignment of an upside-down crucifixion, and Jesus had to lovingly reprimand Peter, as he often does to us, what is that to you? You follow me. Many of us need to hear those same words. Don't worry about so-and-so. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that other person. You follow me. This is the call in your life. We need to hear that and find freedom in them. And finally, our 80 or so years of life, if we live that long, there is zero guarantee. And this is just a sampling. It is not exhaustive. 
My point is we have all sorts of limitations, not just time, but emotional, relational, social, economic, and one limit that we all share, no matter where we fall and whatever the spectrum is, is time. None of us have more than 24 hours in a day. I, I got sucked into watching that uh, Bill Gates documentary, which turned out to be a, like, a, a, I was so bummed I got to the end and it wasn't a documentary, it's like a series. I'm like, I'm not gonna give 20 hours to this, what in the world? But I watched episode one and I thought it was interesting how he's obsessed with time and his assistant at one point said, because it's the one thing that he can't buy. Bill Gates, richest man in the world, does not have any more time than you or I do. Which means the solution to the problem of hurry and the decline of margin and overload and a burnout culture and with its spiritual demise is not more time. I don't know about you, but on a regular basis, I catch myself saying, I just wish there were five more hours in a day or whatever. Anybody say that? I do all the time. But I mean, if you just think that logic through, it's erroneous. Like, let's say that God altered the structure of the universe to make five more hours in a day, or one of, a doctor finally came up with like a cure for sleep or something, you know? And we had to sleep just three hours a night or something off this drug. What would you do with it? If you're anything like me, I know exactly what I would do. I would fill all of those other five hours up with even more things. I would start a business. I would get into rock climbing. I would learn French and Spanish. I would write more books. I would do all the things. I would be really good at chess. I would, do, I would read the news longer every day. I would fill up that time with even more things and then I would end up even more exhausted and tired and with less margin than I even have now. The solution is not more time. It is to slow down and simplify around the three goals of following Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. Put another way, to just simplify our life around abiding quiet prayer, around our spiritual formation, our growth and maturity into people of love, and just to do whatever small but meaningful work Jesus has assigned to each of us to do in this world. But to do this, we have to, in the language of the legend that is Pete's Gazzaro, receive the gift of limits. I love what he writes in the Emotionally Healthy Church. In emotionally healthy churches, people understand the limits God has given them. They joyfully receive the one, two, seven, or 10 talents God has so graciously distributed. As a result, they are not frenzied or covetous, trying to live a life God never intended. They are marked by contentment and joy. Emotionally healthy churches also embrace their limits with the same joy and contentment, not attempting to be like another church. They have a confident sense of God's good hand on their church for such a time as this. Exhaustion, depression, anxiety, burnout, superficial spirituality, these are usually signs that we are living outside of our God-given limitations. Not the ones that are put on us by oppression or by culture, but the ones that are blessed upon us by God himself. As Tristan said a few weeks ago, emotions give us valuable emotion, information. And often that information is where we are living without God's favor over an endeavor in our life or an activity or a habit or a way that we utilize time. One way of reading the temptation of Genesis 3 from a few minutes ago is as a temptation to transgress our limitations. In the story, God has a space in Eden with boundaries around it for human and life 
to flourish and thrive. And that space is under the creator, but over the creation. It has a lot, it's a beautiful space. It's a space of delight. It has all sorts of yeses and one very simple no, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the serpent's temptation? It is to move beyond the good space God has for us and the limits that come with us, with it, in a quest to become like God, to become a person with no limits at all. And this is where our external culture of overload is really just the byproduct of an internal heart of sin in the language of the Jesus tradition a heart that just can't accept its place before God. God is creator, I am creation. Under creator, over creation. My point is there are so many examples of this. At the risk of getting some people really mad, I I can't stop thinking the last few days about the current national conversation slash controversy around gender right now in our culture. And for all of the talk in the social media sphere, very little of it is actually about the psychological phenomenon of gender dysphoria, where your mind does not match your body. And that is a genuine thing for which the heart posture of a follower of Jesus should be nothing but compassion. But the conversation has very little to say to that. It's not about science, it's not about psychology, it's actually anti-science, it's about ideology. And much of it is, in about, is in about an attempt, a culture-wide attempt to transgress any and all limitations, even the limitations of our own body or our own sexuality. To say, my body itself will not even tell me who I can be or what I can do. And at the risk of sounding insensitive, that is, that is a great example of a culture that just cannot accept any kind of limitations before God that cannot say with a heart of delight, this is my place before God in his world. But what if our limitations aren't an obstacle to overcome or fight, but what if at least some of them are a gift to receive? And again, this is one side of a two-sided conversation, potential is true, I get all of this stuff, so just please have grace for my language here. But what if there's a grace here I was chatting to Pete Scazzaro just recently, and he had this great line, this one throwaway line. He said, you know, you find God's will for your life in your limitations. We all get that we find God's will for our life in our potential, in our gifting, or our personality, or the open doors before us, or opportunities, and that's beautiful. Again, I'm all for it. But it's just as true that we find God's will for our limitations. And when we focus on potential but say little to nothing about limitations, we drive our soul and our society to burnout or at least to hurry. Parker Palmer has this beautiful little book, Let Your Life Speak, where he tells his story of burnout. And my favorite insight of the book is he just points out that sometimes burnout is a function of giving too much, meaning you work too many hours, you do too many things. But for most of us, that, that, that problem is easy to fix. Just take a vacation and cut a few things out of your schedule. The deeper problem is that for many of us, burnout is a function of trying to give something that's not ours to give in the first place. Trying to be somebody that we're not. Trying to transgress our limitations to please our parents or fit the stereotype of this gender, this class, this person, this pastor, this thing, this whatever, that just drive our soul to exhaustion because we can't live inside of our limitations. Back to the digital dashboard. This is what my digital dashboard actually looks like a lot of the time. There's my maximum limitation, like it's 11 o'clock at night and I have to sleep or I will die or whatever it is. That bottom line is, you know, that I should live below that inside my limitations, but I often live well over my spiritual and emotional glass ceiling. 
in this place of just exhaustion, overload, far beyond my capacity to live a loving and joyful life. If I'm honest, I actually, this is embarrassing, but I actually have a really high capacity for task. So I know the DISC test hasn't been popular in a decade, but I love it. And I'm a DC, if you know, on the DISC test, so I'm all motivated by task. I just wake up in the morning and I just want to get crap done. And I can get a lot done. Like, just ask my family. Like, I just, I have this gear I get into where just stuff is getting done. But you do not want to be within a one-mile radiance of me if I do that for very long because I actually have a very low capacity at an emotional level. Some of you know I'm very melancholy by nature and in my 20s, I had a very serious struggle with anxiety and depression, was suicidal for several years, and I have a very low relational capacity. And so there's this literally daily struggle in my life where part of me can just go get crap done. But if I do that, I will not. I will be a jerk to my wife and my children. I will not be a loving, not just will I not be happy, I will not be a loving soul before God. And all of us are a little bit different. My wife down here actually has a really high emotional capacity. She's really resilient and a really high relational capacity. She has the platter, right, very extroverted, but she has chronic health issues. And her body just won't let her live. If she does too much with her body, she will just at some point begin to wither on the vine. My point is all of us would draw our dashboard a little bit differently, but I'm guessing that most of us have, this is my absolute maximum, this is where it's healthy to live, and this is actually where I live on a day-to-day basis. This is a theology without limits and a life without margin. So how do we live within our limits with joy and gratitude as followers of Jesus. Well, there are many practices from the way of Jesus that aid in our quest to receive the gift of limits. And again, I mean the healthy kind of limits, not the oppression kind. We've covered two in this series. Two weeks ago, we covered silence, solitude, and stillness. And then last week was Sabbath. Next up on the docket, and last for our series together, and this is really kind of the end of it, is simplicity. Now, the practice of simplicity is a spiritual discipline of living inside our God-given limits with joy and freedom. It goes by other names. People also call it simple living. The monks used to call it frugality back in the day. We're not gonna call it that. Nobody will wanna do it. Um, The secular version is called minimalism, or Greg McCown, and his excellent book on this calls it essentialism, where you live for the essentials. But it is a discipline in that it's about disciplining ourselves to live for what really matters and not waste our time and with it our life on ephemeral pursuits, trivia, entertainment, distraction, materialism, whatever it is. McCown defines it as the disciplined pursuit of less. Joshua Becker, who is a former pastor who now teaches on minimalism full-time, defines it as a lifestyle where people intentionally seek to live with only the things they really need. Richard Foster, kind of the guru of evangelicalism, has simplicity is an inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle. Now, at one level, simplicity is just about our money and our stuff. It's about living with less, less clothes in our closet, less things in our garage or our apartment, less crap that we don't need, whatever. Because as Alan Fadlin insightfully said, the drive to possess is an engine for hurry. 
Meaning the more stuff we have, the busier we are. Everything we have, it takes time, it takes care, it takes responsibility, it takes repair, it takes mental energy, it takes time to use it or whatever. So the more things that we have, the busier that we are, the more of a life of hurry we live. So at one level, simplicity or minimalism or whatever you wanna call it is just about living with less stuff. But at another level where it really starts to get traction is it's about all of our life less hobbies, less travel, less entertainment, less digital distraction, not out of some kind of austere, grumpy masochism, but rather as a disciplined attempt to create space and margin for more of what we most value and desire in our heart before God, which for those of us who follow Jesus is Jesus himself. And Jesus, this is the beautiful gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, who says to all of us, come and follow me. Jesus will not run you ragged. His yoke is easy and his burden is what? Light. All week long, I keep thinking of Jesus' vision of a simple life in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll do an in-depth exegesis on this in Matthew chapter six, which is really kind of a theology of simplicity. And at one point at the end, he says, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans, not a derogatory term in Jesus' day, the pagans run after all these things, but your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Notice his choice of verb, the pagans run after all of these things. Not walk, not hike even, not mosey, but run. When you live by the values of pagan or secular culture, be it money or hedonism or career success or status or likes on Instagram or travel or rock climbing experience or whatever your thing is, it will likely drive you to a life of hurry and in the end to a life with no margin and lots of burnout. Jesus' invitation is to set life with him in the kingdom as the predominant desire of our heart, to make living with Jesus and becoming like Jesus the, the orientation of our whole being. That's what he means by righteousness. He means the goodness of your character. To make that just life with Jesus in the kingdom and the person that we become as we follow him, people of goodness and of love, to make that the orientation of our entire life, to align our schedule, our budget, our activities, our rule of life, all of it with that as our telos, as our end goal. We're back to this idea of a rule of life, a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that order your life around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing what he would do if he were you. These three practices that we've covered over the last three weeks, silent, solitude, and stillness, Sabbath, and today, simplicity, though we said little about it, but all three of them do wonders to help us slow down, kind of unhurry from the toxic pace of our culture, create a little margin, and above all, live present in love. To the point, we thought it would be fitting to devote an entire teaching to each one of these on our practice of developing a rule of life. And I would just encourage you to make sure that all three of these counter habits are large and in charge in your rule of life. Whatever your personality, whatever your stage, whatever you like, dislike, wherever you're at, just make sure that on your rule, you have some quiet, you have a healthy dose of rest, 
and you have some margin. I literally, on my practice, a fixed hour schedule, and I have a couple blocks that just say margin on them. Sorry, I have an appointment with margin Thursday night. I can't do anything because from six to seven before date, I just am hanging out with margin or whatever it is. Now, as we end, I'm not gonna lie to you. I need to say this, it's very important. I do not have this one down. Of these three practices, quiet, I have that one down. I'm not gonna lie. I'm very introverted. It comes easy to me. I love it. I make it my ambition to start every single morning, 365 days of the year possible, in the quiet before God in prayer. And by prayer, I mostly just mean sitting in the quiet and letting God love me. And I make it my ambition to not, if at all possible, um, depending on parenting and stuff, to not come out of that quiet place until I'm just a real centered in God and his peace and his joy and his love. Sabbath, that's like a life message for me. It's like so in my muscle memory. We love it. Last night was, oh, our Sabbath yesterday. It was just, it was the highlight of our week. And simplicity, this is an interesting one. You know, it's really weird because wealth is relative. We'll talk about that. So I'm not really sure exactly what it means. But I guess for a middle-class Portlander, if you were to say, look at my wardrobe, you would say, oh, wow, that's, that's very simple. Well done. If you were to come into my house, there's very little clutter. If you were to open my closet, there's not a lot of stuff there. We work really hard as much as you can with three kids. We're just like flypaper for crap. But um, we work very hard. <laughs> to not have a lot of stuff in our house and to live. If you look at my schedule, I don't have like 19 hobbies that I do on the side. And I just have a few really close friends that I invest a lot of time in. So at one level, like I'm into it. I've read all the books. I have a chapter on it in my book. I'm into it. But man, this thing on margin, this is really hard for me. How do I know about like what it's like when you live with chronic exhaustion and how it's incompatible with love? I don't know that because I read a book about it. Like I know that from personal experience. And I, and I wish I could say that was me in the past and now I've moved on and I have it down and let me tell you all how to have it down. I, I asked my wife, that's just not true. I still on a regular basis say yes to way too much stuff. Just way too much. Um, I need to hear again Anne Lamont's line, no is a complete sentence. Uh, but it's hard for, I don't know about, it's hard for me to say no. I was with Chris and Meryl Vienand a few days ago. Most of you know Chris, and, Chris is the South, they're the South Africans that are mentors to T and I and sit on our board of directors. And I was with them for a, a long time, getting a lot of just kind of wisdom from them and mentorship from them. And at one point, Meryl, who's a therapist and really kind, but very observant, said, you know, something about your personality, John Mark, and the family you come from, which is one, both are wonderful, but like you have a really hard time saying no. Because when you say no, you feel like a bad person. I thought, that's right, I feel like a bad person. I feel like I'm a bad pastor, I'm a bad friend, or I'm a bad employee, or I'm a bad whatever. And so I say yes too much. And then I click over past the ceiling to this place of overload with no margin. And then I just become this person that I don't wanna become, my family does not want me to become, Jesus does not want me to come. I begin living outside of God's call on my life. And this is where, as we end, you know, this conversation around burnout, which for some of you is an acute issue, for others is not, or just tiredness or whatever stress due to lack of margin is a gentle invitation from the spirit and from our own soul to explore the at times dark underbelly of our motivations not with any guilt or shame, that's just not helpful and it's not from God, I don't think, but with a piercing honesty and a humility before God. John Ortberg said it so well, hurry isn't just a sign of a disordered schedule, it's the sign of a disordered heart. 
Meaning when you have a life without margin and hurry and overload, it's likely that more than just your schedule has been knocked off track. It's likely that something in your heart has gone awry and you and I can no longer say, I seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. That's the first driving motivation in my heart, but rather something else has supplanted that motivation and began to wreak havoc in our life and our schedule. It could be any number of things based on your personality and your Enneagram number and your stage of life and your autobiography. It could be like me, a fear that you're a bad person. It could be people pleasing. It could be over responsibility or under responsibility. It could be pride and vainglory or it could be the opposite, low self-worth. You don't feel like you're important enough to say no. It could be ambition or laziness. It could be a lack of scheduling or over-scheduling. It could be a lack of time and quiet prayer. It could be a temptation from the serpent so to speak, into your life. It could just be the reality of this season as your parents are dying and need you or whatever it is, any number of things. But I think as we move forward into the week ahead, there's a little practice that we have on practicingtheway.org for you, just a little to whet your appetite. And at a basic level, it's just to slow down and simplify your life, all of your life, not just your money and your things, though what a great time to get rid of stuff in your closet, but really to live inside your limits, to recapture the gift of margin But at an internal level, it's much deeper than that. It's even now as we move into a time of prayer and singing, and for some of us that's just kind of sitting or standing before God, to really explore what's disordered in our heart. Where if we're honest, and dishonesty doesn't help anybody here, where is Jesus not first in our heart? Killing it on our career is, or entertainment is, or our body is, or child is, or you fill in the blank. Where is it more important that our child get this grade or perform in this way or that we do this thing or that we get this accolade than it is that we live before Jesus in prayer? And just to explore that disordered place in your heart and then just invite the bold and courageous but gentle and compassionate Jesus to come into that space, to set us free from its hold over our desire and to give us his easy yoke and to set himself as first. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join the circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.